When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Finally seeing sunlight after two months underground. The lead starts right now. After weeks surviving constant Russian attacks and shelling hold up in underground bunkers, some Mariupol residents are now above ground and out of the besieged Ukrainian city. But many are ending up in Russian-controlled territory. Are they being forced there? Then, the U.S. border crisis that has even some Democrats running ads distancing themselves from President Biden for lifting a Trump-era policy. Plus, a warrant issued today for the Alabama corrections officer last seen leaving jail with an inmate charged with murder. CNN has an exclusive look inside his now-empty cell. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our world lead in the besieged city of Mariupol, Ukraine, where some civilians are finally finding a way out after weeks, months of a re- relentless Russian bombardment. Ukrainian officials say there were two planned evacuation corridors today, one for people around the city who want to leave and another for those who had been trapped inside the Azovstal steel plant. But it remains unclear if either of those corridors held. This is new video of a large smoke plume over the city of Mariupol today. And a commander at the steel plant tells CNN that the complex has been under constant fire since early this morning. Ukrainian officials say around 100 civilians were successfully evacuated from the plant yesterday. You can see this evacuation bus filled with families and small children. One steel plant worker describing her two months in the shelter like this. I can't believe it. Two months of darkness. We did not see any sunlight. We were scared. The question now, where will these evacuees end up? Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says some are headed to Zaporizhia. That's a town still under Ukraine's control. But there are videos and photographs that show some civilians taken to areas under Russia control in the Donbass. And there's no way to know, at least for now, whether they went there by choice or by force. Let's get straight to CNN's Nick Payton Walsh, who's live for us in Zaporizhia, Ukraine. And Nick, some evacuees were supposed to arrive there today. Have you seen any yet? No, none of the contingent that we believed was supposed to be part of today's well-heralded United Nations and Red Cross plan. That's important, Jake, because those we did see coming into a welcome centre here in Zaporizhia had essentially been conducting their own journey under their own auspices over the past uh, days or weeks at times, trying to get away from Russian-controlled areas. This particular different day, though, was about essentially the UN and the Red Cross coming in here and trying to establish some sort of more routine method for getting civilians out. There are 100,000 potentially in Mariupol who want to get out, and then, of course, the hundreds inside Azovstal steel plant. They did not arrive 
in Zaporizhia today. That's absolutely clear. And they're not really expected overnight, as far as I understand. I think hopes are high that maybe in the latter part of tomorrow morning, we might start seeing the Azov-style evacuees coming out here. But there are significant questions still about this, certainly. There has been some video posted by the Russian Ministry of Defence that does appear to show something that looks a lot like a Red Cross-escorted convoy somewhere near the east of Mariupol. Now that potentially suggests that they might be taking certainly a circuitous route towards Ukrainian held territory. Some might more cynically suggest that might suggest part of this is heading in the direction of Russia. Remember there's a sort of binary problem here Jake. When you leave Mariupol you can go towards Ukrainian held territory through Russian checkpoints and that's where I understood earlier on today that this initial wave of Azovstal evacuees was headed. Although some in the past, thousands, many say, have been heading, in fact, towards Russia to filtration camps there and resettlement, some might suggest forcibly, inside of Russia. That's the key issue today. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has made this, frankly, a calling card, whether they can get this evacuation to happen on the scale they need to show, frankly, that negotiation has a place in a war where there's very little trust and very little decency on the side of Russia, frankly, just to let innocent civilians out. And so far today, that expectation, that hope has been substantially delayed. It hasn't come to anything as yet. Jake? All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and a group of Democratic lawmakers are in Poland today after having made a surprise visit to Kyiv to meet with Ukrainian President Zelensky over the weekend. Back home, early issues are slowing down the process of getting billions more in military aid sent to Ukraine. CNN's MJ Lee is live for us at the White House. And MJ White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was just asked if President Biden plans to also visit Kyiv to meet with President Zelensky. What does she have to say? Yeah, you know, she was asked this question again because Congressman Adam Schiff, who was a part of that House delegation, came back and said he thinks it's only a matter of time before President Biden himself makes that trip. The White House press secretary making clear that there are still no plans for the president to go on such a trip, that they are constantly assessing the situation and saying that the president certainly would like to go. But of course, in the past, the White House has been pretty clear about the very serious uh, security concerns about such a presidential trip. Uh, so again, at this moment in time, no such plans uh, exist for him to go. But yeah, this was a surprise trip, an unexpected trip uh, that wasn't announced ahead of time for security reasons, where members of the House went to Ukraine and met for several hours with the Ukrainian president. They said that they really wanted to get a sense from the ground, directly from the president himself, on what exactly the needs are, what the situation uh, is on the ground. And then they also made another trip to Poland, where they could get a better sense of the humanitarian crisis and also met with U.S. troops. Now, all of this is, of course, uh, a way for American officials uh, to show solidarity with the Ukrainian people. Uh, we saw just recently Secretaries Blinken and Austin also making such a similar trip, Jake. MJ, what do we know about the status of the $33 billion aid package that President Biden proposed? Yeah, this is the request that he made uh, last week. But we just know right now that it is a work in progress. Uh, my colleague Manu Raju is hearing over on Capitol Hill that it's unlikely that this package is going to come together this week, that it could take several weeks for that language to actually be put together. Uh, keep in mind, the House is not uh, in town this week. There's also just the important question of what is going to happen to the COVID funding bill and whether these two pieces are going to end up moving together or whether they are going 
going to be uh, handled separately. But of course, uh, it's worth emphasizing just sort of the uh, urgency here, particularly when it comes to the weapons and military assistance piece of this. We know that from the last package that was approved by Congress, the portion that was allocated for security assistance, the White House has been saying for days that most of that has already been allocated or has been spent, Jake. All right, MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio. He is the ranking Republican in the House Intelligence Committee. He's also on the House Armed Services Committee. Congressman, uh, good to see you as always. So congressional sources tell CNN today that there are a number of issues being sorted through when it comes to this $33 billion for additional aid to Ukraine. They say it will likely take at least a few weeks to get the bill's language sorted out. As you know, Ukraine is under attack right now. Uh, Do they have that much time to wait? Well, this uh, spending package includes more than just aid directed to Ukraine. Uh, And the president does have uh, some authorities with the Department of Defense to ensure that there are continued flows of weapons and assistance to Ukraine. Uh, This package includes uh, some additional resources uh, for also our NATO allies so that we can shore up that eastern uh, front. Uh, Those are going to be very important. And as you just heard, the details that the White House are putting together are not yet complete. But certainly, I think overall, you're going to have a, a very receptive, bipartisan, bicameral uh, support for this bill. So you do, you do think a number of Republicans are going to join with Democrats to pass this? Well, everybody knows that this aid to Ukraine is essential. And, and when you look at what Russia has been, been doing, that the um, inhuman uh, killing of innocent civilians, the destruction of cities in Ukraine, the leadership of President Zelensky, uh, I think people are, are very committed uh, to continue Russia, giving Russia difficulty in Ukraine. I spoke to the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.K., Vadim Prestiko, on Friday. This is uh, partly what he told me Ukraine still needs. Take a listen. We need anti-air, anti-sea, something which will allow us to hit more ships. And there are a couple of nations in the world which actually have these technologies, especially those ones who have a bigger fleets. So he's, he was talking about anti-air and anti, anti-aircraft and anti-sea uh, uh, weapons. Does the U.S. have that kind of weaponry to give to the Ukrainians? Well, the, the White House has put in their basic construct of this bill, again, we haven't seen language yet, <laughs> that heavy artillery, um, anti-sea, anti-air would be included. We don't know the specifics of those. Uh, certainly the U.K. has said before that they also would be providing uh, Ukraine with assistance with anti-sea. The, the goal here, obviously, is to give Ukraine some uh, relief by having a standoff, both in just the uh, the air and in the sea, uh, so that they can uh, lessen the shelling that has occurred of, of innocent, uh, innocent civilians. Uh, today, Germany's uh, foreign minister told CNN uh, that his country is ready to agree to an embargo on Russian oil. That doesn't include Russian gas, which which Germany still depends on. How big of a step could this be in reducing the massive amounts of cash that Europe is still handing over to Putin and Russia every single day? Well, it's certainly a step in the right direction. What it's showing is that there's going to be consequences for Russia for this. It's not just going to be a ground war between Ukraine and Russia uh, with you know, aid coming from other Ukrainian allies to give them the weaponry that they need. That it's going to have broader ramifications beyond just the sanctions the United States has put in place and the EU has put in place. That's very important. When, when you become a pariah, when you become that nation state that people now see as an international adversary, 
uh, and as you know, breaking the norms of just general uh, hum humane standards, uh, then it, those actions are the kind that make a difference and that certainly signal to Russia that the world does see them uh, differently and that they're uh, going to be received differently. So Russia is finally allowing some civilians to leave the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol. Do you think that and to the release of Trevor Reed, does that signify, I don't want to be overly naive about this, but does that signify that maybe Putin is getting more serious about diplomacy? I, I don't believe so. Um, I, I believe that, um, you know, if you, if you look at what's been happening around this, this, this steel plant, the, they're almost to a stalemate. If you look in other areas where Russia has any advantage whatsoever, they're just killing and slaughtering innocent civilians. I mean, you're seeing mass graves, you're seeing all of the types of things that people say rise to the level of, um, of actual uh, war crimes by Russia. So I, I don't take any of these small things as, as signals when you know what they're doing on a regular basis and they have done in this, this country. I've heard it hypothesized that this conflict will likely end with a basically an occupied Ukraine maybe uh, west of the river, or I'm sorry, east of the river, and then the free Ukraine west of the river, um, a negotiated settlement. Is that your best guess, how's, how this ends? No, well, as we know, Russia already occupies uh, Ukraine in, in Crimea and then have you know, continued to undertake uh, the attack against the Ukraine, having attempted to take the entire country. I think anything that we see um, it's going to be, be hard to rely on any representation that Russia makes. They've already um, made, uh, entered into a, a, you know, a memorandum with Ukraine guaranteeing their territorial integrity before they invaded and took Crimea. So I think this is going to be very, very difficult in any type of uh, diplomatic solution that, that might come about imminently because Russia just can't be trusted. Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, the ranking Republican on Intel. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Good to see you as always. CNN returns to Russia just as the foreign minister comes under fire for controversial comments. Our live report from Moscow. That's next. Then the latest on the search for a corrections officer who disappeared with an inmate the same day she filed for retirement. Stay with us. In our world lead global condemnation today after Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov attempted to justify Kremlin rhetoric that Russians are denazifying Ukraine, which has a Jewish president, by claiming that Adolf Hitler had, quote, Jewish blood and saying the most ardent anti-Semites are usually Jews. The chair of the U.S. Holocaust Museum said this afternoon, quote, to claim that Hitler was Jewish and imply that Jews were responsible for Nazism and the Holocaust is an anti-Semitic lie of extraordinary proportions. In addition to promoting baseless conspiracy theories and hatred, this obscene claim is a grave offense to the victims of true Nazism, the six million Jews and millions of other civilians, and cannot obscure Russia's per perpetration of mass atrocities in Ukraine, unquote. CNN's Matthew Chance is live for us in Moscow, where the Kremlin has imposed strict laws regarding how Russia's presence in Ukraine is described. So, Matthew, what is Lavrov trying to argue? Well, it's just as you say, Jake. Uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign, foreign minister, was attempting to justify his country's decision uh, to send thousands of troops across the border into neighbouring Ukraine from the outset. And uh, they, they've said the same thing. We're hearing it increasingly now as the country builds up towards its Victory Day celebrations to commemorate the end of uh, the Second World War, that just as Nazi Germany posed an existential threat to 
Russia in the 1940s. Ukraine poses with its neo-Nazis, um, you know, a threat to, to Russia and, and to Russians, uh, ethnic Russians in Ukraine. Now, the, the problem with that argument, of course, is that Ukraine isn't run by Nazis. It's run by a Jewish president. And when Sergei Lavrov was confronted with that fact, he reached for that anti-Semitic trope that it's Jews that are responsible for the most anti-Semitic sort of actions and a conspiracy theory that's very popular on the Internet that Hitler himself may have had Jewish blood. And so, yeah, it just exposes, I think, to some extent, how threadbare that Russian justification uh, for them sending their troops into into Ukraine really is. Has the government of Israel responded to these comments? Uh, it has. The, the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Naftali Bennett, has, um, has called them out, basically, as lies. Uh, and he has condemned uh, this idea that, um, you know, Jews should be blamed uh, for the worst crimes committed against Jews, uh, which is, you know, as I say, this, this, this anti-Semitic trope that's, that, that's, that's often put out there. And so, yes, it's interesting because Israel has, up until now, really very much been sitting on the fence when it comes to Russia. It hasn't fully enacted the international rafts of sanctions that have been imposed against um, uh, uh, imposed against Moscow for its actions uh, inside Ukraine. And so this is a very severe diplomatic reaction, which was immediate and quick uh, by the Israeli government to what the Russian foreign minister had to say. Matthew, this um, is your first time back in Moscow since the Kremlin put in place those rather strict laws uh, on how journalists can cover Ukraine. Tell us what you found. Yeah, it is. It is a stri- slightly strange experience because you're right. This is the first time since I've been back. I've been back to Russia since since January. Um, and, you know, on, superficially, there are some changes. I mean, I've only had 24 hours to really sort of be in the city since I got back. It's very hard to get back in, of course, because most airlines have stopped flying back into Russia. But a lot of shops have bo- boarded up. Those that are open selling Western products still uh, have them at discounted sort of fire sale uh, type uh, prices. But, you know, remember, it's not a war zone. We're geographically distant here from what's taking place in Ukraine. So there isn't that sense of trauma and that sense of hardship and that sense of violence in the country. It does feel somewhat disconnected uh, from what's taking place uh, across the border um, uh, in Ukraine. And so that's something very significant. I think the biggest challenge is going to be you know, reporting on this country with those strict laws that have been put in place, which you know, are very careful to restrict how we describe what Russia calls its special military operation in, in Ukraine. And, and of course, uh, very strict on making sure that we don't report information that the Russian authorities regard as false information. And so we have to be very careful about that. The fact that they've enacted those laws has already forced out the vast majority of independent journalists in the country. A lot of the media organisations here that attempted to be critical of the government have closed down. And so I think that's the challenge for uh, all of the independent media that remain in place in Russia. Matthew Chance in Moscow, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Several mysterious explosions were recently reported in Moldova, specifically in the Russian-occupied Transnistria region. Russia is blaming Ukraine, while Ukraine is blaming Russia, saying that these are examples of a Russian false flag operation to justify a pending invasion. And now, as CNN's Randy Kay reports, Moldovans living nearby are worried that they're going to get pulled into the war as a result of this decades-old Soviet-era conflict. This is the village of Koshnitsa. It is actually the last village before the border with Transnistria. Almost everyone here told us they did not want to be interviewed. One woman told us, quote, the less you talk, the more you live. That's where we met Tanya. She fled Odessa, Ukraine with her two children, only to end up here, just a few miles from Transnistria, and feels under threat again. The Russian troops are are very close to here. Does that concern you? 
She tells me, yes, she's very afraid. She's very scared. She says her bags are packed and she's hoping to get to Poland or somewhere safer very soon. Are you worried that Russia will invade Moldova? Yes, of course she's afraid for Moldova, she says. Moldovans are really good people who took Ukrainians in. Down the road, further from the border with Transnistria, we found a village called Vadulavoda. People here were much more willing to speak with us. Are you nervous? Uh, no. No, I feel uh, very good. I know that I can uh, um, stay for my country, yes. You don't have a bag packed to go? No, no. I will stay here and, and I will... Uh, protect my family and my house, yes. So you would stay and fight? Yes, yes, of course. Why not? It's my country. How do you feel about living so close to Transnistria? Oh, I feel okay, you know, but uh, uh, I understand that uh, there is a problem. There is a problem uh, that exists a lot of time. Yes, and uh, I think uh, now it's moment to, um, to resolve it. The trouble with Transnistria is its proximity to Ukraine and its relationship with Russia, which has kept troops there for decades. If Putin's troops are somehow successful in taking control of southern Ukraine, they could create a land corridor stretching to Transnistria and, some here fear, eventually into Moldova and deeper into Eastern Europe. Very, very. This man tells me he's very worried for what may happen in Moldova. Could, can Moldova defend itself against Russia, do you think? No, no, it is not. No, he says, then asks me, have you seen the Moldovan army? He says Moldova is a friendly, neutral state that happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. This woman tells me she too is very worried about Russia invading through Transnistria. For now, it's not a threat, she says, but if that changes... She and her husband plan to run away. This woman came all the way from Canada to check on her family. You're worried for your family? Yes. She grew up here and is familiar with the threats of a Russian invasion. She wanted to make sure her brother and sister and mother-in-law have all they need to escape. We tried to, to help them with the money, but actually to prepare maybe the, the documents, just in case, just in case to have the passports. So many Moldovans deciding whether to stay or go as they wait for what Putin does next. And the Ukrainian foreign minister just today, Jake, said that Ukraine will work with Moldova to make sure that tensions do not escalate in that area of Transnistria. And that's a good thing because we spoke with the former Moldovan ambassador to the U.S., Igor Montano, and he said that that so-called peacekeeping force of 1,500 Russian troops uh, could grow exponentially very quickly. He said they've already started recruiting and those numbers could jump to 50,000 or more very quickly. So he is quite concerned about that. And just a reminder, Moldova here is not a member of NATO or the European Union, it does consider itself a neutral country. Jake? Randy Kay in Moldova for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, a look at the first real midterm test of Donald Trump's power as a potential Republican kingmaker. Stay with us. In our politics lead, will President Trump be a GOP kingmaker or not? Polls in Ohio suggest that his endorsement of Senate Republican candidate J.D. Vance did provide a significant boost. Vance is now leading the field with 23% support, up from 11% in March. But 
at last night's rally, former President Trump complicated the endorsement by getting the name of the candidate he's backing wrong. We've endorsed Dr. Oz. We've endorsed JP, right? J.D. Mandel. And he's doing great. They're all doing good. They're all doing good. So just to be clear, President Trump has endorsed J.D. Vance over Josh Mandel. I personally don't know of any candidate named J.D. Mandel. But either way, now the question in Ohio and other competitive primaries is, do Trump's words, does his overall message still have a major impact? I want to pick somebody that's going to win. And this man is going to win. Come on up, J.D. Donald Trump is testing his role as a kingmaker. Ohio, do we love this guy? Many Republicans do still love him. The question is whether they will follow his lead and support J.D. Vance in Ohio's crowded Senate primary Tuesday. On the campaign trail today, Vance, made famous by his best-selling book, Hillbilly Elegy, was still explaining his evolution from Trump critic to acolyte. I can't turn on the TV without seeing my fat head say something I wish I hadn't said six years ago. I didn't vote for Trump. What he said about Trump, I never liked him, has been played again and again. You can't stomach Trump on TV ads from rivals and critics. I'm a never Trump guy. I never liked him. As somebody who doesn't like Trump, I might have to hold my nose and vote for Hillary Clinton. We asked Vance about those words today. Do you regret them? Do I regret them? I certainly wish that I hadn't said them. It was a mistake because I was wrong. But I, I think it's much more important than to sort of worry about whether you regret something is to actually admit when you make a mistake. Bonnie Boyd, a loyal Trump fan, was offended by Vance's old comments, but changed her tune after Trump offered his blessing. I couldn't, in good faith, vote for him because of things he said against Trump. But then when Trump endorsed him, I thought, okay, I can vote for him now. Laura Yank, who also admires Trump, sees it differently. Do I uh, like President Trump? Yes. Do I follow everything that Trump says, or do I think that he's, you know, the ultimate source? No, God's the ultimate source, and I rely on my own sense of judgment, um, research. With early voting underway, the former president upended the race to replace retiring Senator Rob Portman. He endorsed Jane Timken, a former chair of Ohio's GOP, who also fought hard for the Trump endorsement. I think it created a lot of confusion. And as um, many voters know that J.D. Vance was a never-Trumper, if he had his way, Hillary Clinton would have been president. But he's apologized for that. Well, he's apologized, but the question is, uh, who is the real J.D. Vance? Josh Mandel and Mike Gibbons also have aligned themselves with Trump, but didn't gain his support. Well, obviously, I would have loved to earn it, but it doesn't change the fact that I believe very strongly in the Trump America First agenda. Texas Senator Ted Cruz backs Mandel and had this to say about Trump's seal of approval. Every candidate says, I love Donald Trump. No, 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 I love Donald Trump more. No, 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 I have Donald Trump tattooed on my rear end. Like, okay, we get it. What's your record? Matt Dolan, the only GOP rival who did not seek the endorsement, that it's time for Republicans to move on. I hope this election, when I win, is about, is that people begin to understand that you can run on ideas.
And many Republicans here tell me they are keeping a close eye on Dolan on the eve of this primary. Establishment Republicans do support him, and Trump loyalists are divided among several other candidates. Now, Dolan has made clear he's not a never-Trumper, but he does believe that Trump policies were fine, but the personality is something the party should move beyond. Now, as for the former president, his uh, is making his first big bet in the 2022 midterm elections here in Ohio tomorrow. But, Jake, every Tuesday in the month of May, he'll be tested anew from Pennsylvania to Georgia to other key states for endorsements he's made in races for House, Senate and governor. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Columbus, Ohio, for us. Thank you so much. The Trump era border policy. Some Senate Democrats are actually supporting in campaign ads. That's next. In our politics lead, Democrats are increasingly divided over President Biden's plans to end pandemic-era border restrictions, known as Title 42. The rules allow Border Patrol agents to quickly return some migrants, mostly to Mexico, without the opportunity to seek asylum. As CNN's Casey Hunt reports, with the midterm elections looming, President Biden is facing building pressure from Democrats in competitive races to delay ending those COVID-era restrictions later this month. Hi, everyone. I'm here in Nogales, Arizona, right at the Mexican border. Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan filming this video almost 3,000 miles from her home state of New Hampshire. She went because the Biden administration is planning to lift a pandemic-era rule preventing migrants seeking asylum from staying in the U.S. It's set to happen in May, just months before she'll face voters in the midterm elections. I'm going to keep pushing the administration to develop a really strong strategic plan for how we will secure our borders when Title 42 is lifted. Right now, about 7,000 migrants are being apprehended every day, the highest in years. And the Department of Homeland Security says that number could double or even triple if Title 42 is lifted. It is our responsibility to be prepared for different scenarios, and that is what we are doing. But so far, more than a dozen members of the president's own party have expressed concerns about the administration lifting Title 42. Border State Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona says there isn't a good plan. There hasn't been enough preparation. There hasn't been a plan put in place. So the administration has no plan? Well, uh, they've got a little bit more of a plan as of a couple days ago, uh, but it's still not sufficient. We have this arbitrary date about 30 days from now, where this policy is supposed to go away, and we'd see that increased numbers, and it hasn't even been decided where, this, where the facility would be. Wow. So That's you're just saying one example. thousands of people would come across the border, and at this point... There'd be no place to put them. We don't have the basics of how are you going to handle 18,000 individuals a day safely and, you know, in accordance with our ethics and principles. That plan, I haven't seen yet. Texas Democrat Henry Cuellar putting it bluntly. Right now, some of the uh, actions by the administration is not helping uh, Democrats. But President Biden is pressing ahead under intense pressure from immigration activists. They feel they were promised a sharp break from the draconian policies and inflammatory rhetoric under former President Donald Trump. This is the first president in the history of the United States of America that's anybody seeking asylum has to do it in another country. That's never happened before in America. In New Hampshire, Hassan is facing some of that backlash from the left over her trip to a border wall that Trump championed. What happened to you? You tokenized us previously to talk negative about previously administration, but now you utilize immigrants to win some vote. Shame on you. But Hassan has another challenge, winning over independence in a general election. 
Republicans across the country are dialing up their criticism of Democrats on immigration. As the real Trump conservative, I will fight to finish this wall, secure this border, and crack down on the drug cartels. Those ads could get even tougher for Democrats if images like these, taken during the last border surge, blanket American airwaves again because of a massive surge this summer. Immigration activists are privately expecting that the nation's courts will keep Title 42 in place well past May and possibly until after the midterm elections. A Louisiana judge has temporarily blocked the administration from lifting the policy after more than 20 states sued to block the administration from ending this authority. Jake. All right, Casey Hung, great report. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Coming up, did she do it for love? Was she forced to do it? Growing questions about the corrections officer who disappeared with a dangerous inmate. Stay with us. In our national lead, a warrant is out for the arrest of an Alabama corrections officer after a man accused of capital murder escaped jail. Officer Vicki White and inmate Casey White are not related, but both were reported missing on Friday after Vicki White, the assistant director of operations at Lauderdale County Jail, said she checked Casey White out of jail for a mental health evaluation. Now the sheriff says both are on the run, dangerous, and possibly armed. CNN's Ryan Young got an exclusive look inside the Alabama jail to find out more about this mystery jailbreak. Just hours ago, investigators issuing an arrest warrant for corrections officer Vicki White, who they say may have helped a dangerous inmate escape. If she did this willingly, and uh, all indications are that she did, I, I guess we're trying to hold on to that last of hope that maybe some, for some reason she was threatened and did this under coercion, but uh, absolutely you feel betrayed. Friday morning, the Lauderdale County Sheriff's Office says Assistant Director Vicki White told her co-workers she was taking inmate Casey White to the county courthouse for a mental health evaluation. Casey White is awaiting trial on murder charges. Investigators say security video shows the pair never arrived at the courthouse and no evaluation or court appearance was even scheduled. Several hours later, White's patrol car was found abandoned in a shopping center parking lot less than a mile away from the detention facility. We've gotten some, uh, a couple of tips on, on a possible vehicle. We're still pursuing that. Investigators say they still have no evidence of a relationship between them. We're still looking into that, reviewing phone calls, reviewing uh, video from the jail to see if she spent any kind of extraordinary amount of time in, at his particular cell. So we're actually told Casey White was inside that cell, where the second door is, where you see that brass handle. He was brought out of that cell and brought down this direction. And this was all done the regular way it would be done during any time someone was transferred. They then brought him to that deputy before she took off down a salad port with him. Vicki White's mother is in disbelief that her daughter could have helped an inmate escape. I never heard of him, never seen his picture, nothing. I didn't know anything about him. Davis says her daughter, who was a widow, recently sold her home and had been living with her. The sheriff's office says last week, after about two decades with the department, Vicki White put in her retirement papers. Friday was supposed to be her last day. Davis says her daughter didn't talk about work often and never brought up anything about retiring or inmate White. She's always been, what I'd say, a good person. And like I say, this is all a shock. Casey White was already serving 75 years for a rash of crimes. Next month, he's scheduled to go on trial on two counts of capital murder for the stabbing death of Connie Ridgway in 2015. Tonight, investigators are hopeful he'll soon be back behind bars. Keep in mind that uh, Casey White is a large individual. He is six feet, nine inches tall. 
you know, there is the possibility that he's changed his identity as far as his looks, but he will stand out. You got to think about this, Jake. Vicki White was a boss here. So when she walked down that hallway and made that call and asked them to release him into her custody and walk him down to that sally port, that's something that everyone did here without even thinking about it. They talked about this woman working here for years and that the day after this happened, that everyone was just so in disbelief. They could not believe their coworker can be involved. You think about this, though. This man stands six foot nine inches tall. So he's not going to be an easy individual to sort of hide. So everyone's asking this question right now. What exactly happened? What transpired inside this jail that we got to look at that made her decide to take this ride that no one in this community will forget? All right, Ryan Young in Alabama, Florence, Alabama. Thank you so much. Coming up, the youngest victims of war. CNN talks to families who say their children were targeted by the Russians. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, she's being called the Mary Poppins of disinformation by some Republicans. So just who is the woman tapped to run the controversial Homeland Security Disinformation Board? Plus, a new warning about a summer COVID surge, just as new reporting comes out showing up to 50% of people who got COVID, suffered symptoms for weeks. And leading this hour, after weeks trapped in the bombarded city of Mariupol, some Ukrainian civilians have been able to escape the surrounded steel plant, but the people still trapped inside say they've been under non-stop Russian fire. As Russian forces focus their offensive operations on eastern Ukraine, CNN's Matt Rivers reports on a small, heavily damaged village north of Kiev struggling to move forward amid the trauma of war. At the entrance to the Ukrainian village of Mushun, an effigy twists in the breeze. A uniform stripped off a dead Russian soldier, stuffed and hung from a tree. People hate Russia here because of what it did. The tiny town northwest of Kiev has been leveled. Russian bombs, rockets, bullets destroyed street after street after street. This was the site of some of the most intense fighting of the war so far. On their drive toward Kiev, the Russians attacked soldiers and civilians alike here. Ukrainian bunkers alongside ordinary houses shelled relentlessly to devastating effect. This was probably somebody's kitchen. You can see there's an oven there, some pots and pans, a microwave. I mean, this isn't a big city, but the scale of destruction in this village is on par with anything else we've seen across Ukraine. I mean, this house gets hit with artillery, there's a subsequent fire, and just look, I mean, it's eviscerated. If there is a building in this village that hasn't been damaged in this fighting, we haven't seen it yet. Boom, 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 fire, fire. It was everywhere. It's nightmare. Valentina Fursa has lived in Moshun for years and has never known war until it landed on her doorstep and forced her down into a neighbor's basement. How scared were you? We were very scared. My heart was beating very fast. We thought we would die there. The Russians fired indiscriminately. The fighting only eased when Russia withdrew from the entire Kyiv region. Valentina emerging from the basement to find shell casings in her garden and whatever else the Russians left behind. So all, all these things she says the Russians left behind, so this for washing your hands, another cup of some kind here. There's some sort of 
life jacket that the Russians use. And then even here you've got old old meal boxes even with, with some things left inside there that you can see. For nearly two months after the fighting, residents stayed away. A trickle have now started to return. For them, Russia's lasting effects here more than just bullet holes and bomb craters. Not only do people who are trying to rebuild so often have to start from scratch, but there remain so many mines and pieces of unexploded ordnance that authorities are actually considering closing down this town for a few days until they can clear it. It's open for now, though, which meant Valentina Mahornos could come back home for the first time in weeks. And the weather was nice, so her niece and nephew played on the swing. Different than the last time they were here, when they hid in a basement, as bombs destroyed everything above. Is it difficult to think about that? I don't even know what to say. What we can say is that this tiny town has turned into a symbol of sorts, a village mercilessly attacked that, in the end, stood its ground, a microcosm, perhaps, of the country in which it lies. And Jake, the village of Mashun lies only three miles or so from the city limits of Kiev, just 15 miles from where I'm standing in the center of town. And the Ukrainian soldiers that we've spoken to have said that if they weren't able to put up the resistance that they did in that town, there would have been fighting in the streets of Kiev. We're going to explore that topic a little more on the show tomorrow. Jake. All right, Matt Rivers reporting from Kiev. Thank you so much for that report. A spokesman for UNICEF says the conditions in the embattled city of Mariupol are apocalyptic and ghastly. Before and after satellite photos show extensive damage at the Azovstal steel plant complex after weeks of Russian bombing. The Mariupol mayor says civilian evacuations from the city and from the plant have been, quote, very difficult and entirely dependent on cooperation from the Russians, who have, of course, not been particularly cooperative. CNN's Scott McLean joins us now live from Lviv, Ukraine. Scott, what do we know about the progress of these critical evacuations? Jake, you know, we're getting bits and pieces of information today, and they all adds up to a picture that is not looking good. There is an evacuation for people leaving the city of Mariupol, independent of that steel plant that is supposed to be meeting up on the northwestern edge of the city at a mall there. But last we heard, there was no indication that the buses who were supposed to take them out of the city had even arrived yet. So it's unlikely that they've made very much progress there. The people who left the steel plant yesterday with the help of the U.N. and the Red Cross, there's no indication at this stage that they've made it to their destination of Zaporizhia in Ukrainian-held territory. The mayor of Mariupol says that the reason why it's taking so long is because of this Russian filtration process where people have to get questioned and have to get searched on their way out uh, of Russian-held territory into Ukrainian-held territory. And then as for those who are left behind at that steel plant, soldiers say that Today was a day where there were no successful evacuations, but there were a lot of successful bombings. There was also an unsuccessful attempt attempt by Russian troops to actually storm the plant. The Ukrainians said that they killed five Russian soldiers. Today, there's new video showing a large column of black smoke rising in the sky from that plant. Uh, We also heard today from a deputy commander of the Azov Battalion, which is leading the fighting from that plant. And he says that there are still 120 civilians trapped underground, 20 of them children, and he says that some are trapped beneath the rubble. Listen. 
We damn it needed to carry out some kind of special operation, because people are under the rubble. We hear them talking, but we can't lift those slabs. In addition, we were planning to tear up the bunkers, the entrance to which is blocked. But all night, into Monday, naval artillery and barrel artillery were firing. Aviation has been working all day today, dropping bombs. And Jake, soldiers inside that plant also say that some who have been wounded have started to die of their wounds. Others have begun to faint because of the lack of food. All right, Scott McLean reporting uh, for us from Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss, retired four-star general and former CIA director David Petraeus. He's also the chairman of the KKR Global Institute. KKR owns some defense contracting uh, firms, uh, but we should note you don't work directly with those firms. Um, General, I'd like to start with the report we just heard about the Mariupol evacuations and the fate of Ukrainians sent to these Russian filtration centers. What do you think Putin is trying to do here? Well, they're trying to make sure that there aren't any soldiers who are making their way out of Mariupol trying to pretend that they are civilians. That's a pretty barbaric process uh, and and practice, frankly, uh, but just consistent with what they've been doing all along. As you know, the culture of the Russian forces has really been to commit war crimes rather than to avoid them and and rather than to avoid uh, the kinds of actions that you're seeing and also just the sheer bombing and so forth uh, of locations when they can't get them to subdue any other way. Uh, This is pretty barbaric stuff, uh, but again, consistent with what we've seen so far. What we're also seeing, I think, right now, Jake, is that this is a pivotal moment. Uh, This is a moment where the Russians are desperately trying to achieve victories prior to the 9 May World War II Victory Day celebration in Moscow. Uh, They're working that hard on the east and also in the southeast. And the Ukrainians are being very, very resolute in uh, fighting against uh, giving way ground there. And they've really only given a bit of ground. The Russians really haven't had any successful penetrations. They certainly haven't been able to encircle uh, the Ukrainian forces whatsoever. Uh, And as the weight of this additional support that we are providing, other NATO nations and other Western countries are providing, comes to bear as it makes its way to the front lines, this 90 155 millimeter howitzers and so forth, Mm -hmm. uh, that is going to make itself felt. And I think that we're going to see the Ukrainians start to counterattack and perhaps take back some of the ground that they've very grudgingly given up. So we're told that uh, the chief of staff for the Russian military recently visited Ukraine, uh, including the Donbass region. Um, The U.S. says it isn't sure why he traveled to the Russian front lines. What do you make of that? Well, he's probably trying to figure out what is going on. Why can't we make progress? He's down there trying to work with the commander. You know, they now have one commander in charge, General Dvornikov, the butcher of Syria, uh, known for the bombing of Aleppo in 2016. They really haven't made the progress that they hope to achieve. Uh, And so he's probably down there trying to figure out why is it that we can't achieve combined arms effects? Why is it that we can't integrate air and ground operations? Why aren't we doing better? Um, And, of course, he did narrowly avoid, apparently, uh, the demolition of the command post at which he was located uh, during his visit, uh, with the loss of another Russian general, reportedly. Um, So, again, he is probably getting desperate. I'm sure that President Putin's putting enormous pressure 
uh, on him and on Defense Minister Shoigu to achieve something again that he can announce, Putin can announce, on 9 May in Moscow. Yeah. Over the weekend, we saw photos of a statue of Lenin being re-erected in a town under Russian occupation in the Kherson region. Statues of Lenin, of course, were once commonplace across the Soviet Union. Many, of course, have been removed from those former Soviet states since the fall of the USSR. Reflect on that for a moment, if you could. Did you ever think the day that you'd see the day where Lenin statues, Vladimir Lenin statues, would go back up? Well, there's a little bit of nostalgia that Putin's playing on uh, back for the USSR uh, and, you know, the the great days of the Soviet Union and so forth. Um, and what they're doing is imposing this uh, on these areas that they have taken over. And I think, though, the day is going to come where that statue is going to come back down, because that's an area that's a focus of very substantial Ukrainian counterattacks. They're trying to take back that that town, that city of Kherson. Uh, and when they do, I'm sure that there will be a photo of that statue on its side. General David Petraeus, always good to have you on. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jake. Two sisters, just 11 and 7, both shot by Russians in Ukraine. They're not the only young victims of Russia's invasion. Plus, the issue that has the Senate Democrat running campaign ads showcasing just how she's going against President Biden. Stay with us. In our world, at least 31 children have been killed and 19 wounded in Ukraine's Bucha district. That's according to a local prosecutor in that region. But as more atrocities committed by Russian forces come to light, there is growing fear similar numbers will be found elsewhere in Ukraine. CNN's Sarah Seidner reports from Kiev on the youngest victims of Russia's invasion. We want to warn you, the videos we're about to show you are quite disturbing, but the families want the world to see these faces. Sixty-eight-year-old Galina stands over her seven-year-old granddaughter's fresh grave. This is only the second time she's been able to visit the remains of her sweet, funny girl since the Russians rolled into town, snuffing out life as casually as putting out cigarettes. These are the faces of the children of Russia's war on Ukraine. Two sisters, the family says, were shot in a Russian attack in Bucha. Eleven-year-old Lida flinches in pain, hospitalized. Her seven-year-old sister, Anastasia, lies motionless beside her. She never regains consciousness. Tell me about your granddaughter. Nastia, she says, calling her granddaughter by her nickname. She was so nice. Everyone loved her where we lived. She loved me and always asked me to sing a song for her. Will you sing the song that your granddaughter loved for us? <laughs> she refuses because the song that used to bring them both joy only brings her pain now. She was there to witness the murder of seven-year-old Anastasia and the wounding of a second grandchild who remains hospitalized. She says a Russian sniper shot through their vehicle from these woods as the entire family, seven children and three adults, tried to escape the Russian siege of Bucha. <laughs> These children were scared. They were all screaming, she says. And I asked the soldier to help us. I was begging them, saying, don't you have kids of your own? Funeral director Anna Kalinichenko says theirs is a story that has played out again and again around here. What are these families enduring? 
Russians would not let them bury loved ones at the cemetery. People had to bury them in their own backyards first, then later at the cemetery. The family, she says, have to endure two burials. They have to go through that pain twice. At the cemetery these days, Ukraine's old war heroes are being joined by young war victims. In Bucha alone, the local prosecutor says at least 31 children were killed by Russian forces, 19 injured. Are these war crimes being committed? War crimes, yes. That will never be forgiven, neither in heaven nor on earth. They must burn in hell. Seething anger pours from her lips. She's seen too much death, too many fresh graves all at once, including the burial of 15-year-old Anya alongside her mother. Both shot and burned to death in their car after encountering Russian tanks as they tried to flee Bucha. It was a nice, happy family. The mom gave all her love to her children. Anya's 14-year-old schoolmate says the Russians killed a girl with a warm smile and big talent. The art Anya made, a reminder of the beauty she brought to the world at such a young age. They just wanted to save themselves and they were shot just because Russians wanted to do so. Those bastards don't know why they came here, but they had fun doing it. In Anastasia's case, her grandmother says her son-in-law has already talked to authorities. But for now, her once bright, lively granddaughter is alone. Her final resting place awaits her remains. Anastasia will finally be beside her own mother, who died of cancer not long after Anastasia was born. And prosecutors are hoping that they are able to identify more children as they investigate whether or not these will be brought up as hate crimes. Jake. Sarah Seidner uh, in Kyiv. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a look at the woman picked to run the Biden administration's disinformation board. Republicans are calling her the Mary Poppins of disinformation. Stay with us. In our politics lead, the Department of Homeland Security's new disinformation governance board has set off a wave of criticism from conservatives. Critics are worried the new board, created in part to stem the flow of disinformation about the border, will police American speech. And the board's executive director, Nina Jankowicz, has proved to be a prime target of the critics' wrath, both because of her partisanship and because of her social media presence. CNN's Tom Foreman shows us now why Republicans are calling her the Mary Poppins of disinformation. Lies about a lost election, quack COVID cures, immigration. Homeland Security wants to identify dangerous misinformation, but Republicans are calling the person leading that effort, Nina Jankowicz, a partisan political hack. The credibility of this uh, this board is shot already by the fact they appointed this woman, and they knew it. What's feeding their fury? Just watch. When Rudy Giuliani shared that intel from Ukraine, or when TikTok influencers say COVID can cause pain, they're laundering disinfo and we really should take note and not support their lies with our wallet voice or vote. That TikTok parody and past tweets from Jankowitz have alarmed some on the right who fear she might use her new office to limit their free speech, despite Homeland Security saying it will serve no such role. Clearly where this is headed is they are going to label conservative thought as extremist thought or as disinformation. 
what they're doing is exacerbating those pre-existing misgivings in society. Jankowitz dismisses those claims, and she does have extensive experience in the field, studying it for years, writing a book about it. First of all, I like to say we all need to be practicing informational distancing right now in addition to social distancing. Furthermore, in the wake of attempts by Russians to meddle in past U.S. elections and fear they'll do the same this time around, in addition to spreading general misinformation, Jankowitz's new boss insists political posturing is not on the agenda. The disinformation board uh, addresses a disinformation that imperils the safety um, uh, and security of our homeland. Still, critics say the board and Jankowitz's appointment are overreaches, the kind even she was skeptical of when Donald Trump was in office and attacking what he called fake news. I would never want to see our executive branch have that sort of power. The secretary is still standing by her, saying, look, she's going to have no enforcement capabilities. And by the way, the agency points out this effort really started under the Trump administration. Nonetheless, Jake, you look at that video, you look at her tweets, and on the right, where they're just all aflame over censorship and cancel culture, the alarm bells are ringing. All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Let's discuss with our panel. Uh, Madam Mayor, let me start with you. Conservative radio host Eric Erickson tweeted about this controversy. He said, quote, so the new head of the disinformation board thought the Hunter Biden story was disinformation and believed the Steele dossier. Precedent matters, y'all. When the next president puts Marjorie Taylor Greene in charge of that office, y'all can't complain. What do you think? Well, it's misinformation about the disinformation board. Uh, what the secretary has said is that the rollout could have been better. Um, I believe he announced it during a budget hearing. Um, and there is an opportunity for a reset here. One, I think we have to know exactly what this board will do. What we do know is that it won't have authority. It's more of an advisory board, my mm -hmm. understanding, within DHS. And it's to address some very real issues, address issues related to migration, information, dis misinformation, like we saw um, when we had the Haitian migrants trying to cross the Mexican border, also misinformation coming out of Russia during this campaign season. So the, the work is going to be important, I think, now it's incumbent for us to all understand exactly how the board will work. Um, but I don't think that there's anything to fear. And uh, Ryan, my colleague, Dana Bash, asked the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, about this yesterday. Take a listen. Th those criticisms are precisely the opposite of what this small working group within the Department of Homeland Security uh, will do. And um, I think we probably could have done a better job of communicating what it does and does not do. Will American citizens be monitored? No. The board does not have any operational authority or capability. So we should note DHS initially said the board would focus on countering disinformation coming from Russia ahead of the midterms and from human smugglers targeting migrants on the U.S.-Mexico border. What do you think of all this? Well, I think he's right. They could have done a better job explaining it. Um, and I think all of the theater around the leader of it is, I think, to your point, Mayor, it's, it's better to focus on what this board is actually supposed to do. And in that very same interview, and I watched it, uh, when he went on to explain what it would do, the best he could really come up with was best practices, which is a bit of a vacuous mm -hmm. term. And he mentioned that the department, both under this administration and the previous administration, has, has been engaged in this work anyway, which raises the question, why the board in the first place? 
And so I'm not suggesting the board doesn't have a, an important role to play, but I do think when you roll it out that way, and when you sort of sidestep the question or answer it very quickly, whether you'll be monitoring U.S. citizens, when that's obviously people's biggest concern, that's also also a problem, especially when the national the, the department issued a, a national terrorism advisory bulletin just a couple of months ago saying it's not just foreign misinformation, it's, it's domestic that we're concerned about. And so that's an obvious question to, to answer, which I think you probably should have spent some time on. Um, so when you're digging yourself out of a hole, it's always harder. But it doesn't suggest that the board can't serve a useful purpose. And, and Casey, Republicans are specifically criticizing the, the woman who's going to head this office, Nina Jankowitz, um, yeah. who, if you look at her tweets, uh, I have to say, like her reaction to Christopher Steele has been credulous, believing him, and a reaction to the Hunter Biden story. I mean, there does seem to be a partisan interpretation of various forms of information or disinformation. I think when you're in this space, the challenge is that you really have to play error-free ball. And this is an incredibly uh, loaded, difficult place to operate for the government. It's a critical function, right? We as Americans need to know when there is information that is wrong, that is intentionally misleading, that's coming from foreign adversaries, or if it is coming from domestic groups who have, uh, you know, violent agendas, that's a much touchier area, as you say, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable. If you're going to do it, you have to be perfect, right? It should be civil servants who are uh, essentially very careful about their public personas. I mean, it, 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 it really just, as you say, the messaging is bungled. I don't think that their choice of a leader of it uh, has necessarily helped. Uh, uh, Republican Senator Rob Portman, Leanne, uh, said of the board, quote, I do not believe the United States government should turn the tools that we have used to assist our allies counter foreign adversaries onto the American people. Our focus should be on bad actors like Russia and China, not our own citizens. Is that your understanding of, of what the board's going to do? It's not what Mayorka says the board is going to do. He said it's not going to spy on Americans. But this is an opportunity for Republicans and conservatives. They are going to make a political issue out of this. My conservative sources say that this feeds into more distrust of institutions, of people in power. People, they say, are already afraid to say what they think. And so it plays into cancel culture as well. And so this is going to continue to be a political issue, no matter how well they clean it up. Uh, Madam Mayor, I wanted to get your view. Uh, we, we, we keep seeing um, Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire uh, putting some distance between herself. She's up for re-election this year in New Hampshire. Uh, and President Biden, there was a YouTube video uh, that Casey brought us uh, in the last hour. Take a look at this new TV ad. I'm taking on members of my own party to push a gas tax holiday, and I'm pushing Joe Biden to release more of our oil reserves. That's how we lower costs and get through these times. I'm Maggie Hassan, and I approve this message. I mean, Biden won New Hampshire by seven points, but you wouldn't know it from that ad. Yeah, well, by the time you see this ad, she's probably done focus groups, she's done polling, she's tested messaging. So I don't think that um, this means that, that she's done with Biden. I think it means that she's tested her messaging and she sees what's important for her to say uh, to her constituents. And, and, and listen, it's campaign season. Right. Uh, Joe Biden understands that. He's been through a lot of campaigns. And I think that we have to look at polling um, as a moment in time, I know that there's been a, a lot of uproar about where the polls are and where Joe Biden is in the polling. But polling is a snapshot. It's a moment in time. There's a, a lot of room uh, between now and November for Democrats to get their messaging out and for Democrats to tell the American people how this administration has delivered. What, what do you think of that, Anne? 
Well, she's clearly trying to create some distance. And I think it's, I think it's indicative of something that's kind of been a bigger problem, which is the Biden administration being slow to uh, focus on things that Americans have actually been telling pollsters for quite a while that they're concerned about. So the, the cost of living issues, even before inflation started really kicking in, we see this in large national surveys we do where I work. Um, cost of living issues have been a big concern in a bipartisan way for people. Even concern about their property taxes more than, than their, their federal income bracket, because that's the thing that you, you feel the most. And so when, when inflation really spikes, it's a, it's a big deal. But there have been a lot of other issues, too. You know, crime's been on, on, on top of the list for, it was, it was the top of, of the list across the board for urban and suburban voters for almost 10 months before the Biden administration really began even talking about that issue. So I think now that we're in this election season, you're seeing that, that need to create some distance, especially because, because candidates like this pull pretty closely to a president's approval rating. And so they're really trying to get that that distance by showing by showing where they differ. So it is politics for sure. But I think yeah. it's, it's trying to do something about the, the fact that they're a little too closely attached to an administration that's been slow to wake it, up. It's, it's, not though, it's not as though Biden doesn't have good pollsters, though, right? I mean, the, <laughs> the, the New York Times uh, has new reporting that early in the Biden presidency, his lead pollster was already sounding the alarm that immigration and inflation were going to be big problems, writing, quote, voters do not feel he has a plan to address the situation on the border, and it is starting to take a toll. And nearly 9 in 10 registered voters are also concerned about increasing inflation. Um, and yet they're huge issues. They knew. Uh, they knew. And I think you're seeing the, the fruits of that, which are Democrats looking around and saying, hey, I got to I got to figure out a way to say that I'm not him. Right. If a midterm election is a referendum on the, the party in power, the only way you win, especially in a Senate contest, you actually have a chance to do it. You don't really in a House race. Uh, but in a Senate race, you can say, listen, hello, I am your person. I'm not that guy in the Oval Office that you don't like. Please don't take it out on me. I promise I'm trying to do it differently, right? So I think that's what you're seeing for Maggie Hassan. I think the Biden administration, they've got a lot on their plate. I think that there have been a series of things, particularly I think you saw Afghanistan kind of take all of these issues, crystallize them into a question about competence and whether they're prepared to take these on. And I think that that thread has been pulled through on all of these other issues that are exploding at just the wrong time for congressional Democrats. Yeah, Democratic operatives say that when there's an opportunity for these Democratic candidates to separate themselves from the president, that's actually a good thing at this point in the election. And you've seen it time and time again, even before Title 42 came up. You saw Senator Mark Kelly having very strong opinions about border security, wanting more border security, separating himself from the Democratic Party. So I think if the president's poll numbers continue the same way, I think you're going to see that more and more. And remember, no, they're low nationally, and that's even inflated because of New York and California. In places <laughs> like it, Ohio yeah. and Pennsylvania, they're usually about 8 to 10 points lower. Great panel. Thank you so much, everyone, for being Thanks here. I appreciate it. New information about the text messages that were flying back and forth during the infamous phone call between then-President Trump and Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a special grand jury has been selected in Georgia to hear evidence as to whether former President Trump and others illegally attempted to influence the 2020 election in that state. That pressure campaign culminating, of course, in the infamous phone call between Trump and Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, during which the former president asked Raffensperger to, quote, find the exact number of votes that Trump needed to put him over the top. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. 
CNN's Sarah Murray joins us now live from outside the Atlanta courtroom. And Sarah, what is this special grand jury being established to do? Well, they are going to be digging into Donald Trump, his allies, their efforts to overturn the Georgia election. Twenty-six of them were chosen today. That includes three alternates. And they're going to have this wide subpoena power. They are going to be able to get witness testimony, get documents, get phone records if they need them. And they're going to have 12 months in order to do their work. What they don't do is issue indictments. They're going to make a recommendation at the end of their work to District Attorney Fonnie Willis. And if they think that someone should face charges, then it's up to Willis to get that indictment from another grand jury and bring those charges. She has said she hopes this does not take another year. She hopes to be able to make a decision on whether to bring charges against anyone by the end of this year, Jay. And Sarah, you have these newly revealed text messages between Georgia's uh, Deputy Secretary of State and then Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows during that infamous phone call that we just ran a clip from. What do these text messages reveal? That's right. These are text messages that Mark Meadows turned over to the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. They also came up uh, in this lo- in some recent court filings, but I think they reveal some of the tensions that were going on during this call. Obviously, Trump is pressing Brad Raffensperger over and over again, saying that he won the state of Georgia. In this, uh, in these text messages, a deputy to Brad Raffensperger, Jordan Fuchs, says, "Need to end this call." That's what she's saying to Mark Meadows. I don't think this will be productive much longer. She goes on to say, let's save the relationship. Now, one thing we have to remember about this probe that's happening here in Georgia is it's not happening in a vacuum. The district attorney here is paying attention to stuff that comes out publicly, evidence like this. It's unclear whether that will be part of her investigation, but they certainly are paying attention, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray in Atlanta, thank you so much. A new study shows people who did not have any COVID symptoms to begin with, could still experience long COVID. That's next. In our health lead, CDC data shows nearly 60% of adults in the U.S. and 75% of kids in the U.S. have gotten COVID at some point. While that might mean a majority of Americans have some immunity to the virus, former President Trump's COVID response coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks nonetheless had this sober prediction. Take a listen. Natural immunity wanes enough in the general population after four to six months that a significant surge is going to occur again. Now, Burks thinks the surge will hit this summer, particularly in the South in the United States. Dr. Peter Hotez, the co-director at the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital, joins us now. Dr. Hotez, do you agree with Dr. Burks? Is there going to be a surge this summer? Yeah, pretty much. I think it's quite possible. Here's why, Jake. We saw a terrible surge uh, the first year of the pandemic in 2020 in the in Texas and the southern United States. It repeated with the Delta variant on July, August, September of last year. Uh, and so we're seeing a pattern now of summer uh, peaks of COVID-19 in the South. Um, whether or not um, it's going to be an entirely new variant, I think that's possible. The last one was Delta rising out of an unvaccinated population out of India. We failed to vaccinate um, most of, of the low and middle income countries. So I think there's a vulnerability. And I think Omicron, which is responsible for a lot of the seropositivity in this country, is not producing durable protection. So we're, we're set up for uh, another big wave in the summer. I think that's quite possible. Emerging research shows that anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of people who had COVID experienced symptoms months later. This is obviously 
uh, often called long COVID. There's this preprint study suggesting that long COVID can even affect people who did not have symptoms to begin with. So given that information, what is your reaction to those Americans out there who are saying that we're now at, at a, a stage in this pandemic where we should treat this virus like uh, the flu? Yeah, it's not the flu. Um, we are seeing serious long COVID and debilitating symptoms, exercise intolerance, heart palpitations, serious heart disease, and neurological deterioration as well, gray matter brain degeneration. So it's quite serious. Um, it, it, as you say, it occurs roughly in about a third of individuals, but that number really varies depending on how you do your case definition. It tend, the risks are higher if you have severe illness, the risks are higher if you're a woman or, or of older age groups. Uh, but even among those who with without symptoms, there will be some percentage that will go on to develop long COVID. That's a really fascinating mechanism, but we're going to have to get ready in this country even after this pandemic ends. We don't know how long long COVID will last. Will it be for years? And I think we're, we're really not gearing up our health system to get ready for it. One doctor who specializes in internal medicine told CNN, quote, we are seeing the coronavirus itself interact with almost every single part of the human body, which is just so atypical for most diseases, particularly most viruses. It can work in the bloodstream to cause you to be more likely to get a blood clot. For other people, that coronavirus is attacking the nerves, unquote. Is there a treatment for these long COVID symptoms? Well, this is something people are are looking at. The mechanisms range from looking at autoantibodies and activating a cell in the brain called the microglial cell. There's a lot of work uh, going on at Yale and elsewhere looking at the mechanisms. And so hopefully we can design uh, new treatments. At, at this point, it does not look like it's due to active virus replication, although there are even a, f- a few investigators who disagree with that. So I think it needs to be, we need to have a full court press on this and also looking at our kids because there's some studies out of London that came out uh, last year suggesting maybe one in seven, one in seven kids can also develop long haul uh, symptoms. And therefore, you know, putting our best people in neurodevelopmental and neuropsychology on this is going to be critically important. So people are still gathering for large events. I was one of the many uh, attendees at the White House Correspondents Association dinner. I should note we were required to be not just vaccinated, but boosted and have a negative test uh, that day. Um, Do you think that that is still not enough for uh, an indoor event? Well, I'm hoping it goes well. It really depends on levels of community transmission and levels of community transmission are starting to come down now uh, a little bit in Washington, D.C. So hopefully it won't be anything like the gridiron dinner, but we'll know pretty soon because the incubation period, the period of when you become infected with the virus to when you start showing symptoms with these Omicron subvariants is pretty quick. It's around two to four days. So if there's going to be an issue, Uh, with the White House Correspondents' Dinner, we'll know over the next few days. By the end of the week, we'll know if we're in trouble or not. I'm hoping not. Um, I think you're right. There were a lot of precautions being taken, but we'll know when we know. Dr. Peter Hotez, good to see you as always. Thank you so much for your time. A horrific tragedy in American history. Now more than 100 years later, is there a chance for justice? That's next. In our national lead, after more than 100 years, victims of the 1921 Tulsa race riot may finally get some small semblance of justice. A hearing is underway right now in a lawsuit which seeks reparations for the riot's survivors and other victims' descendants. Photos of the appalling incident show entire blocks gutted by fire. The riot left at least 
300 black people dead in Tulsa's once booming neighborhood of Greenwood destroyed. Insurance companies denied many of the claims for what today would be tens of millions worth of dollars in property damage. Losses the three still living survivors of the riot, as well as the descendants of others, hope to reclaim. Also, worries about a new outbreak of strong storms. Let's go quickly to CNN's Tom Sater. Tom, where is this happening? Uh, Jake, we've got a level four out of five. That's pretty much just north of the Oklahoma City area. You can see that brighter color of orange there, and it broadens too. So our level three from Wichita southward, we had over 300 reports severe weather on the weekend. You've probably seen that terrible tornado video around Andover. Thank goodness no fatalities. Snow in Nebraska and Kansas, but we're watching a couple of areas. In red is a tornado watch. Of course, this is until 10 o'clock Central Daylight Time. Thunderstorms are firing up, and already in orange we have severe thunderstorm warnings. Some over in areas of West Tennessee, northern Alabama. But our bullseye right here is what we're watching. You can see where the severe thunderstorm warnings, but in pink are tornado warnings. Already some observed tornadoes uh, northwest of Oklahoma City. Now we're watching a few more, and this is where it gets dangerous, Jake, because once we lose the, the daylight, these supercell storms will continue to make their way to the east-northeast in the darkness of the night. So again, we're watching a few more, and these are going to be closer to Stillwater, and then in a couple of hours, we'll be watching Tulsa, Oklahoma. So on a grand scale, again, a level uh, three or four out of five tornado watch until 10 o'clock. Again, another restless night. All right. Be safe out there, folks. Thanks, Tom. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you know, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call The Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.